Our second scripture reading for this morning comes to us from the book of Ephesians, the second chapter. The apostles writing to the church in Ephesus about God's grace. So listen now for what the Spirit has to say to the church. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead through our trespasses, that God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power. Come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are countless great mysteries in the universe. Is there life beyond our planet? Will we ever find the Holy Grail? What happens to us when we die? And why do paper cuts hurt so much? This week, NASA revealed pictures from the Webb Telescope, and we caught glimpses of parts of space that have never been seen before by the human eye. We were able to peek at galaxies further into space than we have ever seen before. And I don't know if you spent any time looking at these pictures, but they are fascinating, captivating, beautiful. And I have to tell you, I had two reactions when I saw them. The scientific nerd part of me wanted to know everything that I could about them. What can we know from these little bits of stardust that help explain our existence? And the other part of me simply wanted to settle into the mystery that there is so much more out there than we could ever possibly know, and to delight in the wonder of it all. Our fascination with the heavens, with galaxies far, far away and worlds beyond our own is not new. Humanity has been musing about the lines between the finite and the infinite, the tangible and the beyond, the earthly and the eternal, since the very beginning. 
We've always sought language to describe that which is beyond our knowing, that which requires a certain capacity for awe. But we humans also have a great ability to turn this state of wonder into a concern about ourselves. We are really good at making it about us. And so woven into our gazing about the heavens are philosophical and theological questions. Is there a heaven? And if so, what is it like? Is it a place, a, a state of being? Do you go there when you die? Or do we have access to heaven on earth? And how exactly do I get in? If you ask children, much like we did this morning, they pick up on our wonderings about heaven. A group of children were interviewed and asked what they thought heaven was like, and they said things like, heaven is magical with lots of cloud houses. Heaven's full of toys, especially remote control helicopters. In heaven, everything is all right, like there's no bad guys and no war, said one kid. Another said, in heaven, I'll be jumping on the clouds and doing cannonballs through the sky. One child said, my cat Moo and my kitten Holly will be there. Oh, and I guess God's going to be there too. One very astute child said, I think I'll just be free. All of our human imagination is striving to put language and color and texture to that which is ultimately beyond our knowing. Just as the mysteries of the farthest depths of space cause us to want to grasp that which is beyond our reach, our spirits long to understand that which is beyond our understanding, that which requires a measure of faith. And there is so much beauty in that yearning. The desire to be drawn beyond ourselves into the mystery of God is something that separates us from other creatures. And yet the truth is, none of us really know. While Scripture has a handful of verses that describe heaven, the Bible doesn't actually have as much to say about it as we think. When it does speak of heaven, the concern is much less about a divine street address in the clouds and much more about God's action and activity. Scripture is the story of God creating and recreating a new heaven and a new earth. The biblical story is about God's recreation, renewal, and restoration more than it is simply just a description of a heavenly place out there. We get tied up in the nouns while God is concerned about the verbs. We're concerned about the who, what, where, and when, and God is concerned about the how and the why. We want to know what heaven looks like, where it is, and most especially who gets in. And God is concerned with how the restoration of the world will draw us into God's divine and perfect love. That distinction in our Bible hasn't stopped us from obsessing over the question of whether or not we're going to get into heaven. Somewhere along the line, our sort of collective cultural imagination created a space called heaven, separate from earth, where those who have lived a good life go after death. We come to think of heaven as a kind of eternal reward for a life well lived if we are just good enough, pious enough, faithful enough. 
In this week's scripture and screen episode, the premise of the sitcom The Good Place is built upon this very question. What do you have to do to go to heaven? In the opening scene, Eleanor Shellstrop is greeted by Michael, the architect of her new neighborhood in the afterlife. The Good Place, the show, is a fictional depiction of heaven, a perfect utopia full of happy, smiling people and perfect weather, and stores named things like Infinite Light and Your Anticipated Needs, and a limitless number of frozen yogurt shops. At Eleanor's orientation, she is told that she has been given a spot here in the afterlife because of her exceptional performance on earth. The architect explains, you were all simply put good people. How do you know, you ask? During your time on earth, says the show, every one of your actions had a positive or a negative value depending on how much good or bad was put out into the universe. Remember your sister's birthday, plus 15. Use Facebook as a verb, minus five. And slavery, plus 814,290. Root for the New York Yankees, minus 115. The architect goes on to say, when your time on earth has ended, we calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system and only the very finest people with the highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here to the good place. The very premise of the show is that admittance into heaven is based on your performance on earth. In short, your actions matter, and if you do it well enough, you can, in fact, earn your way into salvation. The show assumes there is this kind of divine accounting system that God keeps kind of like a Santa Claus-style naughty or nice list that determines your reward in the afterlife. And whether we like to admit it or not, my suspicion is that we often live our lives as if this is the gospel. Our motivation for being good people is connected to our desire to go to the good place when we die, or since we don't really know, at least to hedge our bets. But the Gospel of John and the book of Ephesians and the witness of all Scripture points us to a very different kind of promise. The Gospel of John says, do not let your hearts be troubled. I, Jesus, am preparing a place for you in the heart of God, for where I am, there you will be. There's no mention of a report card. No assessment of our past or present sins. Nothing required for us more than trusting that God desires life with us. Jesus is the one doing all of the preparatory work. Similarly, Ephesians tells us that salvation is a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation, according to Scripture, is not a reflection of our actions, positive or negative, but of God's action. By God's grace made known in Christ Jesus, we can know and trust in God's eternal and abiding love and mercy for us. Wherever, whenever, however that love and mercy are made known in this world or the next. 
it is remarkably good news, and it stands in contrast to all of the performance metrics that run in the waters of our culture today. We're accustomed to a world where you have to earn your place and perform well to succeed so much that we're inclined to believe that God might rule in heaven in just the same way. But Scripture says God doesn't work that way. There's one quirk of the good place that the writer of Ephesians would appreciate, and that is that Eleanor Shellstrop wasn't supposed to make it in. By all metrics, she's kind of a terrible human being. She is, as Ephesians would describe it, a child of wrath whose sins were too numerous to count. And lest you think I'm ruining the whole show, which I have a track record of doing at home, this happens in the first episode, but she reveals to her soulmate, Chidi, that there's been a mistake in the architect's calculations. She, in fact, was not the Eleanor who helped end genocide. Lots of points. She was a drug rep from Arizona who exploited the elderly and treated her friends pretty poorly. And yet there she is in the good place, by God's grace, although they never say it that way. While the show takes you on a wild adventure of her erroneous admission to heaven, her presence is actually fitting of the gospel promise. There is nothing, and I do mean nothing, that Eleanor did to earn her way in. It is an undeserved gift of grace. What she does with that gift, once she realizes it, is what makes the show worth watching. To live in gratitude for an undeserved gift is counter to the world where we believe that everything we have is earned, that we deserve it, and yet that is exactly the promise that God gives to us. Reformed theologian Alan Verhey puts it this way. He says, salvation is not a human achievement. It's a gift from God. It's not something we've earned or deserved, not the result of works, not even the work of a decision to accept Christ into our hearts. The emphasis should never fall on how I found God or turned my life over to Christ. The emphasis belongs exactly where Ephesians puts it, on God's grace and gift. It is grace that makes us agents ready and able to praise God's glory and to participate in the good future that is God's plan and our salvation. He says those who have been made alive in Christ already experience the blessing of God's good future. The future is present even while it remains future. So the amazing news of the gospel is that we don't have to be frightened about our salvation. Through Christ, God's choice is clear, and God has chosen each of us now and in whatever mystery is to come. By placing our trust in that promise, we are, as the child described heaven, set free. Free not so that we can do whatever we want and live recklessly, but free so that our lives can become a grateful response to God's gift. If we're set free by Christ's grace from worrying about whether we'll get into heaven or not, then it turns out we have a lot more time to be free to participate in the life with God here and now. We get to live the verbs with God, 
to join in the recreation and restoration and renewal of the world. So our motivation to be good people, it's not about building up saint points to get into some pearly gates out there. Our efforts to be loving and kind and compassionate are a response of gratitude to a gift we have already been given. And the benefits that flow from that gift, love and peace, joy and hope, they can feel like heaven, but they're accessible to us in the here and now. By being set free from the anxiety about the afterlife, we're set free to live joyfully in this life, in this life with God today. Heaven then becomes not some unreachable utopia in a world beyond that we have to earn our way into through good works. Heaven becomes the joy found when we receive the gift of grace and are drawn into life with God together. The truth is we don't know if there's a heaven out there. And if it looks like those mysteriously spinning galaxies we saw in the Webb telescope, or whether it's full of tons of frozen yogurt shops like the good, the good Place, what we do know is that we do not need to be anxious about the life to come. Instead, we, we live as recipients of the greatest gift we could ask for, God's grace. And we respond with gratitude by participating in the life with God here and now, in the restoration, renewal, and recreation of our world. And when we do that, we might find that heaven is actually closer than we think. Amen.